0: You're listening to the Redemption Church Podcast with Pastor Daniel Williams as we go through a series called God Redeems, a study through the book of Exodus. We're about to open our Bibles and uh, worship God through our minds. So if you have a Bible, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, it's, it's a blessing to be able to worship Jesus with you in all of these ways. And I hope that you understand as you're coming to the church that you're seeing that following Jesus is more than just a Bible study or even a service; it's a life, and He is King. He is Lord. He is everything, and He's transformed our life so much so that we would want to give offerings, and so much so that we would want to go to Mexico and be freezing, even though I'm burning up right now. So if I start sweating, it's not because I'm nervous; it's because it's still eighty degrees in Florida. What's the deal? Can we ever get a winter here? I mean, jeez. Um, all right. Okay, so. Let's start, right? Just give me a recap. I just sometimes mentally have to do this just for those watching online, those that are new. And even for me, it's really helpful to understand the context of the Bible when you study the Bible. I really recommend you always study through books of the Bible so you get that context and understanding. We've been studying and journeying through the book of Exodus. Exodus. Uh, in this great adventure, and we're in this section of the book where God is speaking to Moses, the leader, to give direction and guidance to the nation of Israel, the 10 commandments, okay? 10 words, actually, the Bible talks about, these, these commandments, these paratives, and we're actually gonna look at only one of them tonight because that's about as far as I can get, and it's a lot to, to, to unpack and to study, but these commandments were given to the nation of Israel by God, and we need to understand and realize out of love. These were boundaries, do not do this, do not do that. But God, the creator loves his people and he actually gives boundaries. He's guiding the nation, giving them direction. And as a people, they're able to follow his ways. And as they do, he promises in his covenant a blessing. Just as we, as followers of Jesus, when we follow Jesus' ways, we're blessed. We're actually served in that way. God knows what to do, how to do it, and he directs us. And so don't lose sight of this, that God is now descending on Mount Sinai, the Shekinah glory. Everyone's freaked out of their mind, like this is a real event that's taking place, and God literally has descended and come down to give the nation light, guidance, direction, And it made me remind me of the words of Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus, as he came down to the world, as he descended to meet people, he said, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. God is one that that gives life, and our Father, God, the Creator, sent Jesus to give light to give eternal life, to redeem. And his radiance is the exact radiance of God is found in Jesus and his glory. He's the exact imprint, Colossians and Hebrews say. And so God descended being God with us, Emmanuel, out of his love. Just like when we think about the gospel, why did Jesus come? Because God loves us. This is the still same God that loves people and is saying, do this and don't do that. Sometimes we think rules are a killjoy, but actually we're gonna see rules bring freedom in the way that he directs his people and even in these commandments. And this is why it's so important. We're asking these two questions as we study through this text of commandments. What does this mean? We, we're in a day and age now. We actually have to ask this question with morality of what does this actually mean? There's the right and the wrong way. Well, let's not look at culture, our experiences, our upbringing. What does the Bible say about this truth? And then we have to say, what does this commandment or command teach us about God. And so tonight we're going to learn that God values faithfulness, sexual purity, and forgiveness. And so we've been continually being reminded of you all as we're venturing through this law that there is a great guilt that comes upon the law because we are all guilty and fall short of God's glory. But the law teaches us that there is great grace because God has come down and he ascends and he wants to know us. And the law teaches us that we need God. We need God. These morals, these rules, they aren't, aren't bad, but rather we are bad. There's something conditionally inside of us. Sin has broken us and we fall short of that glory. And so there's a consequence of sin. The law was never intended to save us by doing this, doing this, doing this, and then we're good. The law was intended to show us a standard to show us we need someone who's greater than us, God himself. One commentary when I was studying Tony Murda, he said this, the law drives us to Jesus for forgiveness and a new heart. And the spirit then empowers for obedience and overflow. It's an order. You have to understand that because many people feel condemned, but then they don't look to Jesus when Jesus said, there's no condemnation to me. I understand that you're broken, but I love you still. Isn't that amazing that God still loves us? And so he's giving the law so that way we know that we need him and we humble ourselves because, man, he pours out his grace to those that are humble. But if we walk in pride, think we could do it all ourselves and don't need the spirit of God, he's gonna oppose us. And that's where the problem lies. So this is really a good case study for us all today, thousands of years later, to look at this nation to see how God interacted with these people and to say, man, it's not just those people. This is all people and this is us we rebel. We need God to give us salvation. We need God to transform us, for us to do ministry by the power of His Spirit, and for us to be pointed to Him. And so let's ask the Spirit of God to do that. Just silence your heart right now as we're continually studying. Let's just pray. Holy Spirit, teach us more of Jesus. Let our minds worship you as we hear your truth. Thank you, you care about all of us, our whole self. Not just even in a service, but as we walk. Even as we go out in darkness, Lord, we know that we can carry your light. So God, would you extend your grace and your mercy to us once again as we study your word. That you would shine light in the depths of our soul and our heart and purify us set us free of some addictions, set us free of ways that don't honor you. God, help us to experience and know your love tonight as we look to your direction once again. Be glorified and use my words to bring you glory. It's in your name we pray, amen. Well, we may be covering each commandment or commandments. It's like I did for the first week. To the second week, and now I'm only going to do one. It's like I'm trying to learn, okay? I'm just adapting as I go. But I want to read all of them to you. And we have these handouts in our back table. I don't know how many we have left, but the Ten Commandments, the extra study resource uh, that gives you some extra scripture as you can study these commandments on your own, see how the New Testament ties into it. Just a, a short little booklet for you to study and continue to do so. But the Ten Commandments are this, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 17, we'll read along, I'll read in my Bible, the words will be on the screen. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I and the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquities of the fathers of the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse seven, you shall not take the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not, Do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. 10 commandments, 17 verses. And tonight what I wanna do is look to you at verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Command seven. Now at surface, this command seems pretty simple, pretty clear. Don't do this. A lot of those are. Remember, we've covered all of these. We're up to seven now. And a lot of them are just don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, don't do this, don't do this. Okay, done. Easy. But they're more than that. They're profound because they have a great implication. And there's beauty in God's word. And I want you to understand this as we come continually after to God's word, is that As we study and meditate on God's word, he's able to speak to us. Like Psalm 119 verse 30, it says the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. It may seem simple at first, but as we unpack this simple truth, we wanna see what God would have for us tonight, especially when it comes to sexuality and talking about adultery and what that even means because we're trying to define what all this stuff means and teach us what it is about God. And so let's take time to examine, to study, to ponder, to meditate, to think. You guys may experience that in your own devotions. You may read a chapter. You may read three chapters. You may just stop at three verses one morning. And so as I'm studying and as I was praying, I got one verse. Command number seven, no adultery. No adultery. This command teaches us that we are to be faithful to our spouse and should only be sexual uh, intimacy intimate with Them in marriage. Now, on your handout that we gave you, it actually says marriage vows made before God should be kept in spite of difficulties. This is the standard. This is what God desires. He actually wants to bring two together. And we should not run to another person other than our spouse for sexual intimacy. For when we do, the Bible says it's a sin against God, it's a sin against our spouse, and it's a sin against our own bodies. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 18 says this flee from sexual immorality every other sin a person commits is outside the body but sexual uh, the sexual immoral person sins against his own body and it needs to be said this in our culture in our day and ages when we define morals that having an affair is more than just a cute affair adultery is a sin adultery cheating it is wrong And not to be taken lightly because there are horrible consequences for sin. Every time we sin, no matter what it is, there are consequences. And God doesn't want us to go down a road that ends up causing pain and suffering and harm on our part. Now, Proverbs, a book of wisdom, talks actually a lot about adultery and sexual behavior. And in Proverbs chapter six, it says it this way. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned you may hear that catchphrase before hey eh? can you play with fire not get burned or can can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorned so is he who goes into his neighbor's wife none who touches her will go unpunished when you commit adultery it's like you're playing with fire it's not contained like in a fireplace but it's wild. There's no rules. There's no boundaries. There are consequences for those actions. And the Bible says it's dangerous, something that you shouldn't do because you will get hurt and you will get burned. In fact, it goes on in verse 32 of that chapter. It says, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. So again, God gives this command out of love, not because he's a killjoy, Let us not forget what the Bible says, him being creator and we are creation, that God actually created male and female, that God actually created a thing called marriage and sexual intimacy. And in fact, celebrates this and tells us to engage in this behavior. Hebrews chapter 13, verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all and that the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Sexual intimacy should be between one man and one woman for life in a covenant relationship of marriage. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, I need to say this because we live in a culture which totally disagrees with this. I mean, this is not their definition of the abundant life. They want to have as many partners, do as whatever they say, desire their appetites, and just go for it. The world would say, don't suppress yourself, You're you're telling me you're not going to live with that person before you get married? Don't you want to know if you're compatible? Like, they have a totally different standard. But we don't go by the culture. We go by God's truth. And what's ended up happening in our culture is because we define our own morals, we're actually living in those consequences. We don't even know it. Like, we are fish in water not knowing that water even exists because it's just our normal. Our culture is oversaturated with sex. Everything is sexual. And we don't even realize it sometimes. Now, I was reading this and just sort of thinking and pondering on it and it made me think. I was looking at a website called fightthenewdrug.com. It says that pornography, the global industry, is estimated to make $97 billion this next year. $12 of that just from the US. Now out of the top 10 websites, I do a lot of website design and stuff like that, out of the top 10 websites, two of them are porn sites. Now to give you a picture of what this is and the size and the, the sort of capacity of this, the size and the, what people are trafficking, um, porn sites receive more website traffic in a year than Twitter, Instagram, Netflix, Pinterest, Lincoln, all combined. Oh, and Netflix. So think about how often you go to a Netflix, a social account, whatever. More people are going to pornography on the web every single year on this issue. And a lot of people just think this is normal. I'm just a guy. This is just, I'm just a girl. This is just, well, this is what we do. It's so oversaturated, sexual content has saturated our culture and almost everything now in our pop culture, meaning the acceptable culture is sexual and over the top. And you may say, okay, why is this important and why are we talking about it when it comes to adultery? Because you sometimes are a byproduct of your surroundings. They say the five people around you, you become like them. We have to understand and take a step back in our culture. We don't want to be of the world, but in the world. And we have to draw a line and say, there, there is something that's not right. When you think about all the human trafficking and what actually happens with all of this stuff and pornography that, that that people are just accepting, this is not okay. And it's important, more importantly for us as followers of Jesus, because Jesus actually addressed this for us and tells us it's important. He addressed the issue of adultery and lust. In the gospel, gospel, of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, when he comes and talks about the law and how people really need a heart change, not just a click the box change. He actually addresses this commandment and he says this in verse 27 and 28. You have heard it, uh, you have heard it that say that it is uh, was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's command seven, what we're studying tonight in Exodus. But Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Just as adultery has great consequences, so does pornography and lusting after others. And yet the world celebrates lust and sexual immorality. So much so that here's a weird statement, and I don't want to freak anyone out. I've only had sexual intimacy with my wife, Laura. We were both virgins when we got married. That seems so weird now in our culture to even say. We actually have comedies like 40-year-old Virgin saying that's weird and you're dumb if you walk in that way. But yet, the Lord would say, I want you to walk in sexual purity. I I I want you to care about where you have your eyes and how you have your heart and how you treat other people. And although this may be an uncommon statement, the devil would have us think that it's weird. You see, before we move on, we need to define a few things and understand the why behind this command, especially when it comes to sexuality, because it has so much more than to do with just adultery. It's dealing with something where we think God can't touch our sexual identity. Why would God tell people not to do this, not to just do whatever they want? Or in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, he would say this, for this is the will of God. Everyone wants to know, hey, what does God have for me? What's my plan? What's the purpose? How can I please God? Hey, here's the will of God for you. Your sanctification, your holiness, living your life and your body for him, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Some people say, well, why should we listen to this command and the ways of God when it comes to our sex life? I mean, I'll go to church, I'll, even, I'll drop some money in the offering, but I, this is like me, these are my desires. Does God really want to kill me? Yes, he does. He wants you to die to yourself. Pick up your cross and follow after him to have more abundant life. And we need to learn this. And so we actually need to come to this text in definition. Sexual immorality is this, is sex outside of marriage of a man and a woman. Yes, between a man and a woman. The Bible defines homosexuality as sin, as fornication sin, as any type of sexual relationship outside of between a man and a woman that made a covenant before God and others. Because marriage is a covenant, not a contract. And we're learning about this old covenant and new covenant through scripture as we read, and we've lost even what this significance is because everyone bases their relationship off contract meaning behavior modification. If you love me, man, I'll love you. You love me and I'll love you and we'll be good to go. But if you break that, if you treat me wrong, then I'm out deuces. You just do you. You deserve better, girl. You go, you do this, you do that. No, a covenant is much different. And it's significant that we understand this because the Bible says marriage actually speaks of the gospel and what God has for us as well. He actually relates to us through this picture of a covenant and of marriage, meaning it's not based off our feelings, but it's a commitment between two parties to love one another unconditionally. So much so that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage is this great mystery, and it points us to the gospel and how God loves us unconditionally. And you see an attack on marriage because the enemy knows it points to the gospel in a way that you serve one another, submit to one another, love one another. And so now you have in our culture, it's like, well, why even get married? Because over 50% of marriage is just in a divorce anyway. What's the point? We are to love in marriage with the type of standard that Jesus gives, servanthood. Listen to the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And sexual intimacy is supposed to be in this type of relational covenant. One where you can truly be yourself and be known and loved. Like your real, real self, your flaws, your flaws. One where you're not perfect, but yet you are loved by a spouse. And so the Bible actually teaches and is a picture sexual intimacy is actually a picture of the beautiful covenant you made and it reminds you and strengthens you that you are loved, that you are received, that you're protected and secure first off of a commitment so much so you can not only bear your soul, but you can bear your body to one another and to have mutual respect and love And did you know that the Bible actually celebrates sexual intimacy? It's pretty weird. I know it's a weird subject. My kids are in the room. I'm not supposed to say something terrible, but here's Proverbs. More wisdom for you. I'm about to do it. It's Bible. (laughs) Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast be filled at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. That's right. I just read breast in the Bible. I'm just saying. There's a lot more stuff in there as well. Did you know, in fact, there's a whole book of the Bible about relationships and sex called the Song of Solomon, Song of Songs. I know some people get very uncomfortable talking about sex in church, but let me just tell you, everyone's talking about it. I'm uncomfortable too, but if we don't address it biblically, we have to make sure that we hear from God and where else can we renew our mind in this subject if not in the church? If we don't have examples, if we don't call out sin and say, okay, this is, this is wrong, this is right. How do we have good relations? How do we submit to another? How do we love people, especially our spouses, the one that we're committed to? How do we have the spirit of God to fill us, to actually empower us? How do we celebrate that? Because the Bible says the bedroom is pure, and it's undefiled, and it actually celebrates unconditional love and actually strengthens a relationship. And listen, the devil is speaking lies all the time about this. And so we cannot just have a, well, let's just ignore the issue. No, no, let's not ignore the issue. Let's not have our kids learn about sex on the website. That's not the way it's supposed to happen. I'm sorry you're uncomfortable. We need to talk about this because we live in this world and our world is hard and it is broken and a lot of people suffer because they have a false ideology of how sex will be their God, but it does not bring satisfaction. It brings a lot of pain and a lot of hurt. And we want to comfort those that are hurting. God wants us to commit to a spouse, to lovingly serve them and to bring glory to him in our marriage, to bless people in marriage. If you are even called to be married, for that is even a gift of God, and not everyone is even called to do that. Now can you imagine what a marriage would look like if two people tried to outserve one another, or, or when they're submitting to one another, like Ephesians 5:21 says? It's pretty amazing. It's pretty awesome. God does give us direction because He wants to bring blessing and light in this situation, in our sexuality, in our marriage, and He's saying, "Do not do this or go this way." because there's something greater for you over here. Yet, we see that in marriage, it really reveals our heart and our flaws, just sort of like the law. It's sort of lame. You get two people together. They have two different ideas, two different backgrounds, two different cultures. It reveals a little something about you and about others. You actually learn sanctification, the process of loving someone right then and there, because no one is perfect and We don't love perfectly like God does. We're two sinners becoming one flesh, and this creates problems, friction, pain, even at times. But that's where God meets us, right? In our pain, in our brokenness, in our marriages. We're sinners saved by grace, but yet we see God with us, Emmanuel, coming down to Moses, Jesus coming down to the earth. Don't ever, ever underestimate how God comes down to your problem and to your pain. To your weakness, he is strong. He wants to meet you as you see your great need, as you see your imperfections, as you see the problem. God uses marriages to sanctify us, to give us practical application, to love practically. He doesn't want us to get divorces because he knows that that's not a part of a covenant. That's a contract. You need to commit and stay And the only way that you're able to do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Is by going to him for help, to love other people. Remember the whole commandments in the order? First we love God and then we're able to love people. If we neglect our relationship with God, we're not gonna have a great marriage. We're not gonna have great relationships. And we even see starting in the home, it's supposed to foster and create a community to the society, to the culture. Just like how people are to honor their parents so you can learn authority, and do those things. Just like in marriage, you to learn to love your spouse and to love others so you can love your family, so you can love your friends, so you can love the community. But yet in our flesh, when we have problems, what do we want to do? Escape. I mean, I've never seen anyone wake up in the morning and praise God because they're going through some pain. It just don't happen. We're, we're, it's not you're, you're still a Christian, you're still mature. No one wants to go through pain. That's why you have to be exhorted. Take joy when you go through pain because God's gonna work it out and it's gonna be hard and you'll never wanna go through it again. But when you do, you'll have some strength and it will be better for you. So this is why we need God in our marriages and our relationships to become more like him to love other people. Now, you remember last week, I gave you this sort of illustration, you, your spouse, God. I talk a lot about this because in my mind, it's just a visual picture. It's important for me because most people want a great um, uh, horizontal sort of relationship. But yet they neglect their relationship with God, vertical. And I find that when I'm focused on God, I'm, my spouse is focused on God, we're actually drawing to one another and, and, and um, getting closer to one another. I think one of the greatest reasons why Laura and I have a great marriage is because she's awesome. And so she has this common saying, and we have this funny saying in our, in our, uh, in our house. It's like, like, will you forgive me? Yeah, I got to forgive you. I'm a Christian. Of course, I have to forgive you. But it's sort of true. Like, we've been loved by God so much that how are we not supposed to call now to love other people? And when you, God touches your heart so much, it flows out to the relationships that you have. And so when it comes to sex... I want us to biblically think appropriately about this issue, which is a truly hard issue and it's so deep, it's so hard. But many people have false thinking. You see, in our culture today, we've talked about it, idolatry, but this is really what it's at. Most people say sex is God. Well, at least they may not say it with their words, but this is how they live. It's their worth, it's their value, their identity. They live for it, they Overindulge in it, they elevate it. It's like their idol. And they may not have a statue, but in their heart, they try to be satisfied with sexual behavior, pleasure, lust of the flesh. And what's end up happening is there's so much disappointment because of this, so much pain, but they can't, they can't articulate. They don't know the Psalm 115 says you become like what you worship, and there are consequences for their sins. And so they elevate sex as God. But the Bible says that's a terrible God. We shouldn't live like this. But then there's the other extreme. Sex, Sex is not God. Some people think sex is just gross. And for right reasons. There's been so much hurt and pain with sex. When you think about sexual abuse, when you think about how people use it for, or even people to manipulate other people, to just please themselves. Some even in the church have been told not even to think about sex because it's bad. But the Bible says we shouldn't look down upon sex or even like have this attitude, just ignore it. Oh, that's just gross. Let's never just talk about it. We're at church. Let's just worship Jesus. No, he says you can worship in everything that you do, including your sexual identity and how you express that. And so biblically, we need to have more of a worldview of this, sex is good. Sex is good. God created it. Everything he made is good. He's a father of good gifts and wants to bless us as humans in the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. And we should enjoy it as a gift from God. And we're asking what this all means and we're saying a lot of true statements, but what does this teach us even about God? that he would even give us sex and he would even come up with this whole idea? Well, I think it teaches us that he values sexual purity and he's a giver of good gifts. He isn't a killjoy, but rather he gives boundaries so that we can have joy. He knows that when we step out into sexual morality, we end up hurt and there's great price for sin. This is why right after Jesus talked about not lusting after a woman or a man, he warns about committing adultery and lusting and he exhorts us to flee with all that we have, to not give in the lust of the flesh. Remember Matthew chapter five, verse 27, 28. Here's 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus tells us that it is better to cut off the ways of the flesh and the things of the flesh than to live for them and be condemned. Because when you live for yourself, it's not a good God. We know the wages of sin is death. Hell and damnation are real and serious and when we indulge in our flesh and just live for ourselves and X out God in our life and make other things Lord, there is not good consequences for that. You cannot oppose a God and win. But sin gives us fruit, not only for all eternity, but even here and now. When we live out transgression against what God has said is good, there are consequences for that. And this is actually God's grace and mercy. Because I think even times we just talk down, 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 down about the consequences. That's God's grace and mercy that he allows us to feel some pain. Have you ever done that? Touched a hot stove and, ah, that's terrible. Or or got cut, maybe on your arm, maybe this week by a mirror, maybe going to the ER. I don't know. Could be someone. It's like, whoa, this is is serious. This is hard. I got to put some pressure on that. I don't want to bleed out. Sometimes when we do some things like misbehave or go against God and we feel some consequences, God disciplines those he loves. Because as we experience the fruit of our sin, it should cause us to think differently and to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. God wants us to turn to him because God wants to free us and he wants to redeem us and to walk in newness of light to bear good fruit to have peace, to have joy. Now, I think what a beautiful word picture is, there's two stories that sort of came to mind as I was thinking about this. One is in John chapter 4. It's this woman at the well. She doesn't have a name, she's just the woman at the well, and she's living in the byproduct of sexual immoral life, not living a pure life. We see that she had five husbands in the text in the one that she was with right then when Jesus met her, actually she was just living with in sexual sin. And this caused great pain and isolation in her life because the text says it was in the sixth hour that she went to this well to receive water and do the work. Now, this is a weird thing. We may not know this, but the sixth hour, that's like in the middle of the day when it's super hot. It's like I love going to the beach in the morning in the after, or in the afternoon when like sort of the sun sets, but like in the hot, the heat of the day in the dry desert, she's out there because why? No one else is out there. Meaning she doesn't wanna be around community and her sin because she has a reputation is sort of known for that. So she goes outside of the city to a well where she meets no one because she is isolated. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of stuff going on in her life. It's the sixth hour and her sin caused her to be there, feeling shame, not wanting to be around people. Or you may even say she wasn't welcome. But then in the story, we see something incredible is that Jesus goes to this woman. God with us, Emmanuel. He comes in our brokenness, in our sin, in our anxiety, in our stress. And he engages with her. He starts talking to her. He meets her in her shame, her pain and isolation on the sixth hour. And it wasn't just by happen chance because... Verse 4 says he had to pass through Samaria. It wasn't just like he was thirsty in the middle of the desert and I'm just going to go there. If you were a typical Jew, you would not just go through Samaria. You would go around. It was uncommon that Jews would go through this way. But the text says he had to go there. He didn't have to do anything besides what he would reveal to us that he had to do the Father's will. And we know text and we know Scripture in the Gospels. We know that Jesus was sent to seek and save the lost those that were broken, those were healing. He was healing people. He was preaching good news. And so he had to go through this place to meet this lady because he was full of great compassion for her. He has great compassion for the lost, the hurting, the broken, those that even would do things that cause weight of sin on their life and deserve it. You know what I'm talking about? Like not just grace, that's a gift that you don't deserve, but like mercy is where you do deserve something. And God is a God of mercy where he even meets you even when you blow it, when you fail, when you're addicted. And it's weird because he wasn't mad at this lady when he met her, even though clearly she was in sin, she was living in pain. We see the heart and the posture of Christ as being compassionate with her a friend of sinners coming to save. And I think too often times in our culture, in the church, we get this often so wrong as followers of Jesus. Even when we think about this command, we preach, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Rather than preaching, he forgives. Yes, he loves. There's mercy for you. There's good news, compassion. The Holy Spirit does a really good job of convicting people of sin, he says and pointing people to Jesus? You don't gotta be God, the Holy Spirit. You can give the word to the Holy Spirit as you've been commanded to, preaching the good news, saying that there is one that can forgive. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus to this lady. He starts contacting, or uh, engaging with her, contacting her, being with her, engaging and gives grace. And I think people oftentimes... They forget that sin has real consequences. Sin has real consequences. And the Bible says, if you don't know Jesus, you're a slave to sin. Even Paul, who is a Christian, said, I really don't want to do that. But then I end up doing it. I really don't want to do that. So why in my flesh do I keep on doing this? There is a war in our life where we wanna walk in purity, but we just can't do it. And we do blow it, even as Christians. But yet this is where Jesus is right at, in the middle of someone going through it. This is exactly why Jesus had to go to Samaria, to be God with us, to meet her inner sin. And so he tells this woman, who's clearly in sin and blown it, in verse 10. He answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who is it that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Living water, we know, is a term for the Holy Spirit. If you would have known, you would have asked for me, the Spirit of Christ, to be satisfied rather than the going after all this stuff, having your identity and all this sexual morality and all this consequence. You know, if people only knew, if they only knew how good God really is, if, if they only know how great His love is, how He forgives, how there's no condemnation in Him, Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and 15 exhort us as believers that experiences love, say, "How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Let us not forget that as the Father sent Jesus, Jesus so sends us to preach good news to people that are broken not to condemn, but to point them to Christ so they aren't condemned. This is exactly what he is doing. He's going to tell her, he said, listen, if you even knew the love that I have for you, the compassion, what I'm going to do on the cross to forgive and die for your sin. Because he truly satisfies. If you would have known, you would have asked me. We all can be satisfied in Jesus and his ways, even in the teachings about sexual purity. And so he saves us from the pain of adultery, lust, divorce, by giving us guidance in life and saying, Don't do that. Your sin is great, it's powerful. And what's crazy about this story is we should have a mind that is just blown by God's grace in this situation. I don't know if you know the story, but in verse 27, the disciples, they come back and it says they were marveled that he was even speaking to someone like that, engaging with her, talking with her, offering her truth and hope and life. We should be marveled at how God forgives us, that he would even come in our brokenness and offer us living water and forgiveness and redemption. And you know, she found that, went back to the city, and started preaching to everyone she knew. Not because she had to, but because she got to. Because she's, she experienced. This is the man that knew everything about me. He, he's the one, the Messiah, the one that worshiped in spirit and in truth. He can do all things. I find when you actually meet Christ, you have a great powerful testimony. Oftentimes, as religious people, we want to act like we're not sinners when we really are. We don't experience God's love because we haven't revealed that to him and have his light come into our lives. In certain areas, we want to hide, but the Bible says there's, confession, or there's healing when we confess our sins to one another. We need to actually bring these things to God. We should, be marvel, we should marvel at what happened on the cross that God himself made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Now we're no longer slaves of sin, but the Bible says we can be slaves of righteousness, being empowered by his spirit and being effective and fruitful to minister to others. Just like this lady who was bound in sin met Jesus and then went to go be used by God and took the whole city and town with her. Romans thirteen fourteen says, but put in the Lord Jesus Christ, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Christian, you need to continue to put on Jesus and go to Him to be satisfied as your living water and not sexual immorality. You have the decision to make. You can choose, you can ask, you can fight. You don't just have to get knocked over by sin, sin is real. But God has freed you from sin and he's directing this woman what to do, how to do it. He's directing these people in Israel what to do, how to do it. He directs us today what to do and how to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have his word and we can ask God for help in these things. We need to trust Jesus and follow him and his ways in our sexual identity. Now there's one last story when I think about the seventh commandment. As we sort of come to a close, do not commit adultery told you there was a lot in there. We know that the Bible teaches that adultery is a sin. And let me just tell you, I've seen the horrible side of sin. You may have experienced it yourself. It has severe consequences. It promises you a lot of fruit and then it lies. Anyone that's gone through a divorce knows that. And even in adultery, divorce is actually permitted when adultery happens in marriage. And it causes this great pain, Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. And so the law would actually say, when you commit adultery, this command, you would actually be stoned to death. As a consequence, as a picture to show people how terrible sin was. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 says it. And there are other places in the law and Jesus in the gospel is showing us who the Father is and the ways of God, he meets another woman. Again, we don't know her name. We only know her just as the woman who committed adultery. In John chapter eight, we see the Pharisees, they knew this law, they knew this command. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, and yet they think they know God. And by now they know Jesus' character and his heart. And he was constantly forgiving people, healing people, loving people, loving the unlovable. um, Because he is the living word, he's perfect. And they were doing things that they couldn't do in their own strength. They had a whole bunch of check boxes, the Pharisees, legalist people. But yet other people were following Jesus, not them because it wasn't coming from within their hearts. They were just trying to put on a persona, a personality, just trying to put on holiness, but holiness comes from the inside. Jesus is the holy one, the perfect one, the living word, and he's doing this, and so other people are following, starting Jesus, not them. And honestly, they're just mad. They're upset. They're jealous at this. So they try to trap him, and they put him to the test. And the text says this, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now we know this is sin. We know you shouldn't do it. The law would even go on and say there's consequences for sin. It's serious. And placing her in the mist, they said to him, teacher, that was their word for Jesus. This great teacher, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? You're going to give compassion? You're going to do truth? This they said to him, Jesus, that they might have some charge to bring against him. I want you to notice these religious people didn't care anything about this woman. The brokenness, the pain, the things that they were showing, uh, going through. Because obviously it's apparent they didn't bring the man. The law says you're supposed to bring both parties that commit. It takes two to tango. You know what I'm saying? This is just real. Where's the man? They don't care. They just are bringing this to break a test because they don't have compassion. They're they're rule-based. They wanted to elevate themselves over Jesus. So they pointed out other people's sin rather than showing compassion. Be careful if you have a religious spirit like this. Using the law to just point out other people's sin so that you can be higher than them. It doesn't lead to love and compassion. It's an outward holiness. It's not from within. And Jesus in his wisdom and love does something both to expose sin and to love this woman. He starts writing words with his finger on the ground. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him. And he stood up and said to them, let he who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now, many scholars have ideas of what he said, but honestly, we have no idea what the words he said are. But we do know the text says it was the finger of Jesus. And he starts writing things on the earth and it reveals to them some truth, some words, some language, and some communication. They weren't just exposing the, women, the woman's sin, but whatever he was writing was exposing the sin of the religious. Because Jesus says, well, you go ahead and throw the stone at her. If you're without sin, do it. So whatever he's writing is not just to reveal her sin, but it's revealing their sin because now they're hesitant to even throw the first stone because he's giving some type of communication with his finger writing on the ground. It's a weird story, right? It's in the Bible. Verse eight through 11 says this, and once more he bent down started riding again on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, maybe the more wiser ones, mature ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they now? Has no one condemned you? She looks at Jesus and says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. After Jesus, writes on the ground with his finger, he looks up, the people are gone. And it's just this woman looking at him. It's just the woman in him now. And this woman hears from Jesus as she looks up to him, I do not condemn you go and sin no more. She finds mercy, grace, and love as she looks to Jesus in his eyes and words of freedom. She experiences that he is a friend of sinner, that he forgives, that he doesn't want to condemn and doesn't have a heart to condemn, but to love. Now, what does this have to do with our commandment and what we're talking about today? Exodus 31.18 says that God ascended on Mount Sinai and met with Moses and it was the finger of God that touched the ground and became two tablets that Moses was to take and to give to the people. And these tablets revealed that they were sinners. They were broken, they needed a savior. God himself gave the commandments to us so that we would look to him and look to Jesus, the savior, not to law. He didn't give us the law to point out other people's sin, but rather our sin. For James says that if we break one law, we break all of them. And oftentimes we pick the law, we choose the 10 commandments, but there's actually 613 Levitical laws. There are other things and there's heart conditions and there's morals and civil and purity laws. And as we look to them, we see, wow, they actually expose all of us, not just that type of person or that type of person. You see, the Pharisees were trying to point out that type of person in her sin. I mean, I, I'm not a murderer. I, don't, I, I live in sexual purity. I'm committed adultery. I'm not even married. But as you look to what God has written on the law, it starts exposing your own heart. And it says with the old, they started going away because they couldn't condemn her. They couldn't throw a stone because if so, they would have to throw it for themselves because we are all fall short of the glory of God. And so God gave us the law to show us our sin and so that we would look to Jesus. And so Jesus starts writing on the ground with his finger, exposes people's sin, And the woman looks to him and is forgiven. While the people that left and got their eyes off of Jesus felt shame and moved on. And in our world, we often flip that around. We think the people that fall into sin should be shamed, condemned, throwing the guilt. God says, no, those are the people I've come for. I love you. I'm going to take that weight upon you. Come to me, all who are thirsty and heavy laden. I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you only knew how much I love you and I'm going to go to the cross and bear your shame, your guilt, your weight because you no longer have to come to me based off your own behavior. You come to me based off my behavior. And so God forgives her and says, sin no more. He forgives you and me. He says, sin no more. You could be transformed, changed by the power of God so much so that you can walk in holiness and sin no more. And the Bible exhorts us now just to look to Jesus. That's our hope. This is what it teaches about God. He's the one that forgives and loves us unconditionally like a covenant, no matter what our behavior is. Because the Bible says that, We're the bride of Christ. He wants an intimate relationship with us, but yet we fail in sin, and we actually are the adulterers. The nation of Israel will be called out over and over again in the Old Testament, how they would go away from God and commit adultery and have different idols. But the good news of the gospel is that if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And he has his arms open wide for forgiveness. And no matter what you've done, Christian, non-Christian, today, yesterday, tomorrow, he is forgiving and you can go to him and look to him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. There's your seventh command. It's just another illustration and point for you to look to Jesus and his rich love, his mercy for you and how he forgives. And so we celebrate that tonight. That we can actually submit to him in this way. And he says, when you come together, remember that beauty that I have for you. Look to me, look what I did on the cross and look that I'm gonna come back again. And so we're gonna celebrate and take communion together as a church family. We're gonna sing a song. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come on up. We're gonna talk about and sing what he has done. And as we do, we'll close with taking one song of communion and then we'll dismiss our service Take a little bit of break, give a few hugs, talk to some people, and then we're going to wait upon the Lord and ask God to continue to minister to us as those that want to stick around and be in the presence of God and just pray and hunger and thirst for him and just sit before his throne. So let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace. We thank you, God, so much for the, the beauty of your word. We pray, Lord, that as we receive this word, that it would not fall on deaf ears. Lord, that we would see your beauty, that we would be in awe of you for what you've done, God. You give eternal life for sinners that are in need of a savior. So God, we want to come and confess our sins. Once again, we want to come to you and look to you in the goodness of who you are and celebrate all that you've done. Jesus, you are beautiful. We're in awe of you. We thank you for dying on the cross for our sins, for bringing you renewance of life, for making us spiritually alive. Thank you, God, that we don't have to try harder and do better, but we just come to you over and over again and we celebrate all that you've done. And so, Lord, as we humbly come, would you empower us with your spirit? Would you transform us to want to walk in holiness and newness of life? So thank you, God. It's in your name we pray, amen. This is Pastor Daniel Williams at Redemption Church in Delaware Beach. Thank you so much for listening to that message. We pray it was an encouragement. It was a blessing to you as we love to pursue and to proclaim Jesus together. And so no matter where you're listening, whether it be YouTube or our podcast, you can go to more resources at redemptiondb.com and even partner with us in ministry to pursue and to proclaim Jesus. God bless you, and thank you so much for listening.